everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update for episode 117. Today I'm going to talk about our featured species, which is yellow birch. That should be a lot of fun. I've got some questions from you guys uh, about um, stress wood and sapwood, particularly in walnut. And I'll probably get into some other trouble along the way. But I do want to throw this out there because I still get this question. How do I submit questions? Well, real simple. Send those questions to lumberupdate at gmail.com or go to lumberupdate.com and there's a contact form that you can submit there. Heck, you can even go to lumberupdate at Instagram and you can send me direct messages there. You know what? At Renaissance Woodworker is another place you can find me and you can submit questions there. Heck, I've had people go to handtoolschool.net and submit questions there for this show. You seem to all be able to find me, but I've got new listeners coming in every day, wanted to ask questions, and I'd love to hear from you. So there you go. Now, I can also say if you are a patron of the show, uh, patreon.com slash lumber update, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can ask questions via Patreon too. And I will tell you, those patrons who ask questions, they tend to get on the show relatively quickly. Call me easily bribed, but that's the way it works. So moving on here, I've got a little bit of industry news. Um, I talk a lot, well, not maybe not a lot, but I've certainly talked in the past about what happens when lumber is seized at a port. You know, illegal lumber, whatever it is that's been seized in a raid, determined to not pass customs. And a lot of times it goes in a warehouse. I always picture that great big warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where like they stick lumber in a crate and like stick it over in a corner somewhere. But I was past a great article from Ryan who talks about in Colombia illegally seized or lumber that's been seized for illegal harvesting is instead of being burned or turned into mulch or sawdust, it's actually being set aside and repurposed to build apiaries or beehives for the struggling honeybee population in Colombia. Now, this article doesn't really talk about a particular species because I imagine it's probably multiple species. It's probably a, a percentage or a, you know a board footage of material that's been set aside to build these apiaries. And how cool is that? You know, it's terrible that this lumber, for whatever reason, was felled illegally. But you know, you can't undo an omelet, right? Once you've broken those eggs, you got to do something with them. And it's fantastic to hear that they're doing something that can also be helped from an ecological perspective. So thank you, Ryan, for sharing that. I will link to this, of course, in the show notes. And show notes can be found over at lumberupdate.com. Great article, Ryan. This one's particularly interesting from great friend of the show and constant sender of articles. This comes from Jay. In Brazil... There are um, obviously a big, thick rainforest, right? The Amazon rainforest. And one of the biggest issues with reforestation is just access. Um, I suppose that's the, it's also one of the issues with catching illegal loggers is sometimes you can't even get there and you can get there under cover of trees um, and, and fell some trees, but it's really difficult to kind of hit them on the ground. So drones are being used to catch illegal loggers, but they're also using drones for reforestation efforts, trying to reseed an area, a spot in the canopy where trees have been felled legally or Ill illegally, just getting there to reseed can be particularly difficult. So those drones used to catch bad guys are also being used to seed the forest. 
and they've had quite a bit of success with this. Drones can drop ridiculous amount of seeds into like surgical precision areas in order to promote reforestation. I think that's really cool. And, you know, the thing I love about this more than anything is from a business perspective, uh, we deal a lot with IBAMA. That's the Brazilian ministry, uh, forestry ministry, forestry ministry, Brazilian forest ministry. And they're doing a lot of really high-tech things from probably the most advanced lumber tracking system based on blockchain to, you know, catching guys with drones, um, DNA sampling of trees and tracing DNA sampling, uh, GPS tagging of stumps and logs to maintain chain of custody and drones to catch bad guys and drones to reforest. So there's always more work that can be done, but it's just fantastic to see a government like the Brazilian government taking great steps and not afraid to use technology to their advantage. So yeah, great, great story. Thank you, Jay, for sharing that. Uh, I think it's time to talk yellow birch. Betula alleganses, uh, or you could call it Allegheny birch if you want. So first things first, let me just say, I specifically chose this species, uh, birch, but specifically yellow birch, because it is actually the first experience I had in milling my own lumber. I had gotten a small, I don't know, probably an 18 inch long, uh, eight to 10 inch diameter log of yellow birch, and I milled it into boards on my grizzly 14 inch bandsaw. And it struggled, it definitely struggled with it. But those boards that I generated, that was like my first foray into the Mac Cremona world. And honestly, I still have two of those little pieces that I've kept around. Um, I built a box out of um, some of it. I turned some other bits of it. I've turned some pins from it. I turned like bottle stoppers. Um, pepper mills and things from it. And I still have two boards that um, I guess they're probably about 12 inches long, um, maybe six inches wide. They are through sawn, so they're two live edges. And I don't know, I'll do some, some with them someday. But yeah, it's just one of those species that will always kind of be a milestone for me in my woodworking. So let's talk about Betula alleganses, the yellow birch. It is the most common of the birch species. You're going to find it Northeastern North America, all over Eastern Canada, all the way down the Appalachians, probably into Northern Georgia. It is all across Maine, all across New Hampshire. In fact, I think it's the state tree of New Hampshire, all over Vermont. And it, it's a birch, right? So it's got that kind of papery bark that makes it immediately identifiable. The important part about um, yellow birch versus paper birch, Betula alleganses, yellow birch, Betula papyrus. I automatically think of papyrus, but it's like papyrus or something like that. That's paper birch. Um, paper birch has super, super peely bark, but it's white bark. Yellow birch has a yellowish bark, hence the name yellow birch. Now, the wood itself of yellow birch does have a little bit more yellow in it than paper birch, but Honestly, they are nearly identical and working property wise, they're very similar as well. In fact, you'll find that a lot of the birches, the silver birches, the paper birch, the Alaskan paper birch, the yellow birch, they all are very, very similar in how they work. Now, some 
general things about yellow birch. Um, it also can be tapped for syrup like sugar maple. And from what I understand, a little bit of digging around some internet forums, birch syrup, it actually is more valuable. I guess, I don't know, everybody thinks of maple syrup. Birch syrup, I guess, is for really artisanal hipster type pancakes. So there you go. If you have a birch tree, you can tap it and you can make really, really fancy syrup. For a long time, birch was used to make toothpicks. And um, these days, some of it's maple, a lot of it's bamboo. Falcata is an Indonesian species that's used for a lot of toothpicks. But for the longest time, all the way up until about World War II, birch was used to make toothpicks. One of the things about the birch, the bark is incredibly flammable. It's very oily. This is where um, teas and things like birch beer are made from. It also can be used to make uh, methanol and even ethanol. But uh, yeah, the bark itself of the birch tree is extraordinarily flammable. Um, I mean, my God, this tree is used for everything. There's a lot of it all across North America. Certainly it's used for furniture. A lot these days you see it used for flooring, cabinetry. It's used for charcoal. It's for pulp products. Um, veneer, certainly. Plywood is probably one of the biggest ones. Baltic birch plywood or just shop grade plywood. Finished birch. It comes from the yellow birch or some of the birches, mostly yellow birch, just because yellow birch is the most common. Um, it's, uh, wow, tool handles, boxes, spoons, definitely a lot of spoons. And you will see like like low-end solid wood interior doors are made from birch more often than not. Um, pine or birch, but I think a slightly higher quality interior door, they'll be, they'll be pine, and then the next step up would be birch. Um, man, I mean, it, it, it takes stain really well. It paints really well because if it's nice, even grain, it can also take a really nice high polish to it. So it's a lot of, uh, a lot of flexibility to it. Yellow birch chips actually can be used to produce ethanol, um, and, and methanol products. I was talking about the bark. Some of that's the bark, but also just chipping it can be used to make uh, alcohols. One interesting fact I found out about this is it used to be used a lot in boat building, specifically for boards below the waterline. And I found this kind of at odds from what I understood about birch. Um, from a from a plant perspective and why you would plant birch is it absorbs a lot of water so if you're in a riparian area or maybe you've got kind of a swampy low spot in your yard planting a birch tree near that it sucks up a lot of water so where you might have had a little bit of standing water after a big rainstorm plant a birch tree and that standing water will disappear because the birch roots the birch structure sucks up a hell of a lot of water and it holds on to a lot of water and this can actually be the same. I'll talk about this a little bit later when it comes to seam bending, but the lumber itself, it has a capacity to hold a lot of water. And that seemed kind of weird to me for boat building, but the more I think about it and the more digging I did, um, just because a board or a species absorbs a lot of water doesn't mean that it's not good for boat building. Now, it can mean that it's not good for light craft boat building. You probably wouldn't make a good canoe or kayak um, unless you were building like a squirt boat that's meant to, to float under the water. It will still float, but because this was used below the waterline, it was a way of adding ballast to uh, a boat. The water below the water, excuse me, the boards below the waterline, the birch would absorb water and add that extra weight and act like, you know, a weighted keel in many respects. So I'm no boat builder. So 
you boat builders out there who know what you're talking about, who want to expound upon this a little bit more, this is just from my own research. And I found that kind of interesting because I immediately thought, I don't think of birch as an exterior wood or like a maritime water resistant wood at all. I've always thought of it as a wood that absorbs water really well. So that kind of um, honestly blew my mind. But now that I read a little bit more, it does make a lot of sense. Um, let's let's get into some of the technical stuff. Uh, the tree, I've heard it can go up to 100 feet tall, but it's my understanding the tallest tree in North America is actually in Acadia National Park on Deer Isle, Maine. I've actually seen it, and I believe it's 76 feet tall. So like I looked at the wood database and they say it grows up to 100 feet tall. I think more usual is 70 to 80 feet, about three foot diameter. So standard tree, you will see them all over the place. You don't see these as being enormous six foot trunks. They're typical forest trees, about three foot in diameter, papery yellow bark, and they're fast growing and not particularly old. A 40 year old birch tree is an old birch tree. So here again, one of the reasons they're used in so many different um, applications downstream is they're incredibly fast growing. Um, they're relatively easy to grow as well. And the turn rate can be quite high. So 40 years is getting to the point where it's going to fall over its own accord. You can imagine a 20 year old birch could be harvested and you could possibly deal with a birch plantation or a birch forest with 20 to 30 year turn rates could be very, very common. Uh, we've talked about the range. Uh, it's it's a lot of places. The, the native range is shrinking a little bit. Um, call that global warming. I don't know. They're all over the place. This tree is not endangered at all. From an appearance perspective, um, I like to think of it like maple, but a bit redder and a little bit more grainy, kind of like beech. So the medullary rays of birch are finer than beech, but think of... Um, quarter sawn beach and you kind of get those little like dash marks of the medullary rays or look at like the medullary rays or quarter sawn cherry uh even quarter sawn maple to some extent where they're kind of they're not you know big fat rays like you would find in oak but they're just very very tiny little dash marks across the the the, the face the birch is similar to that but they're quite fine very narrow rays in that respect um one of the figured variants of this is called flame birch. Uh, that's probably um, you know the most expensive birch, but also the birch that you see in veneer is more often than not going to be flame birch. Although from a veneer plywood perspective, it is an incredibly even grained wood, very close grained diffuse porous wood. So it actually makes a great substrate for plywood. And that's one of the reasons that birch plywood is ubiquitous with shop plywood. If you're looking to skin, uh, plywood with you know a more decorative veneer or you're looking to build cabinets that you'll be painting on or something like that you want a very uniform um, close grained species and this is why birch is is the shop grade plywood the finished birch baltic birch that's all yellow birch um, grain structure it is diffuse porous it's got kind of medium pores certainly bigger pores than you would find in maple you more off, most often will find them in radial multiples. So you'll find two pores attached together, sharing a common wall, and they tend to be oriented vertically along the radial axis. That's why they're called radial multiples. Very fine rays. Um, I like to think of it again as kind of a mellowed out version of beach when you're looking at those medullary rays. Hardness, it's similar to red oak. It's about 1260 Janka hardness. But honestly, in working with it, it's going to feel harder due to that diffuse porosity. 
Um, it's going to be very similar in workability to Beach, a little bit softer than Beach. Very similar, I've actually discovered, um, to Iroko, of all things. Iroko is a more interlock grain, but the feel of it under a chisel and under a saw is almost identical. And I only say that because I'm building a project right now that uses Iroko, solid wood Iroko for some mortise and tenons. And I've been using beech for a secondary wood, or excuse me, birch in a, as a secondary wood. And they act and feel and cut and produce sawdust that's very much the same. There's very, there's little to no similarities between Iroko and birch other than the hardness, but just the way the porosity is structured, it does feel very much the same. Birch is also quite similar in hardness to Karooing, which will actually come up later in this episode, and similar in hardness and appearance to Madrone. And actually, off the top of my head, I don't remember the botanical hierarchy of, or taxono taxonomy, taxonomy of Madrone. Now I'm curious. I have to look this up um, because I wonder if there is some similarity there. I don't think Madrone is anywhere near the Betula genius. Um, but I happen to have wood database up, so I'm going to look right now and see why I'm thinking that way. Yeah, it's an Arbutus menziesii. Um, what family it's in, I don't know. Yeah, like no relation whatsoever, but um, it's actually, Madrone is actually a really good alternative species. Look, porosity, everything to, um, to birch. Uh, also similar hardness. Uh, MOR, MOE, 16.5 thousand MOR, 2 million approximately MOE. Um, very, very similar to actually some of the ashes. Hickory in some respect, not, not, sorry, not hickory. Um, what's the one I'm thinking of? Um, Hawthorne, Hawthorne. Um, certainly beach. All of the birches are going to roll up under the same type of thing. Uh, from a density perspective, about 30, 43 pounds per cubic foot, uh, similar to European ash, which by the way, European ash is my favorite uh, Latin botanical name, Fraxinus excelsior. Call me a Stan Lee fan, but that's always been my favorite. Um, <laughs> so the weight of the birch, very, very similar to beech, uh, similar to hickory, similar to hawthorn, and similar to, to European ash, which is a bit denser than uh, like some of the North American white ashes. From a movement perspective, it's got a TR ratio of 1.3, relatively high movement, 7.3 tangential, 9.5 radial. So it does move a lot, but that 1.3 ratio does mean it's a it's a pretty stable wood. You'll find that it's um, a lot more stable than some of the maples, certainly some of the oaks. Um, again, primarily known for plywood, used heavily today. Uh, for flooring. That's a nice close grain, relatively hard wood that's just a little bit different than maple. I feel like maple flooring gets overdone. This adds a little bit more warmth, a little bit more red and yellow tones to, uh, to a room can be really quite nice. Um, as I said, one of its unique attributes is as a tree, it absorbs a heck of a lot of water. As a board, aka a dead tree, it still absorbs a lot of water. So despite it being very diffuse porous and very close grain in appearance, it steam bends extraordinarily well. And everything I know about steam bending says ring porous woods are going to be the best. They give you that, that room for um, compression and, and, and expansion when you bend. There's very little dead air for um birch to move around in, but because it absorbs water so radically, 
it really softens all those fibers and it makes the entire wood much more pliable. And when you look at a lot of um, Scandinavian chair making, even Appalachian chair making, you will find that birch is showing up. Now, the Scandinavian stuff may be more silver birch, certainly some yellow birch, but again, you're going to find very similar working properties amongst all the birches. So um, I've seen it a lot in Sloyd where I find spoons and shrink pots and all kinds of bent chair um, in the Sloyd tradition being made out of birch. So it's kind of one of those fascinating woods because of how well it absorbs water, it happens to steam bend well. From a cost comparison, it's hard to say. Um, some mills are gonna have birch and they're gonna have a lot of it. So it'll be priced as a commodity, similar to something like poplar. Other mills are just not going to get it very much, and you'll find that it'll be priced more like cherry, which I don't consider cherry to be an expensive hardwood. It's kind of middle of the road. There's certainly a lot more expensive ones, and there's also cheaper ones. So birch kind of right in the middle there. As I said, my experience with it has been quite positive. I've made boxes from it. I've turned stuff from it. Um, I have not actually steam bent it, and now that I um, have said this, I, I feel like I want to go, um, I need to go buy some birch because all the birch I have is, is really too small for, for much bending. But I think I would like to go and try steam bending it. I've certainly, uh, yeah, I'm intrigued by that. From an alternate species perspective, the most obvious one to me is paper birch. And I like to think of paper birch as the hand tool version of yellow birch. Again, yellow birch is about 1260 Janka hardness. Paper birch is gonna come in under a thousand in the 900s from a hardness perspective. And it can be very nice and easy to work with with hand tools. I do have some personal experience working with paper birch. Now it was green so that it really worked well because it was nice and green, but I've, I've carved some spoons from paper birch when I've been up in Maine and it was absolutely lovely. Certainly the maples are gonna be a good alternative. Maple will be a little bit wider than this. Your red maple may be closer to it. It's not gonna be as grainy. Uh, maple is gonna be a little bit more bland than birch, but it's certainly a good alternative. Madrone, as I mentioned, hornbeam, great New England alternative, although hornbeam's gonna be about twice as hard. Tamarack, that's another Southern one, that uh, Southern North American species that could be a good alternative. Liptus, um, or a eucalyptus variant, commercially known as Liptus, very similar working properties, kind of similar. It's a little bit redder than you would find in yellow birch, but similar graining and appearance. And if you want to get really exotic, Nara, I find, is actually has a lot of similarities to birch. So it's an interesting species. It's a little off the beaten path as it doesn't get a whole lot of press, but it's also relatively easy to get anywhere in the world. And before you say, well, the birch that I have over here in Albania is not yellow birch. Again, pull up, you know, the wood database and look up yellow birch and like scroll down to the related species and look up Alaskan birch, alder leaf birch, downy birch, gray birch, river birch, silver birch, sweet birch, Baltic birch, maser birch, maybe not maser birch, but look up all these birches and you'll find that there's actually quite a bit of similarities in the working properties and the overall appearance. You'll find different hues you may um, run into, different hardnesses, but they're all relatively the same. And that's one of the reasons that, again, it's used so much for plywood because plywood is really a global commodity product and huge northern boreal forests in Europe producing yellow birch, but also silver birch, um, river birch, Betula nigra, uh, that one shows up in plywood a lot. So before you discount it and say, wow, you're being ethnocentric and yellow birch is in North America. Yes, it absolutely is, but it's also all over Europe. 
and all of the variants are very similar to it. So there we go. That is my spiel on birch. Um, it's great wood to work with. I quite enjoy it. And I've got in my hot little hand, my yellow birch featured species stickers that I will start mailing out um, as soon as I hit stop on this recording. So little commercial. If you want to sponsor the show, I'd love you for it. If you want to sponsor the show and get something back, sponsor it at the Walnut tier, and I will be mailing one of these stickers to you every month you remain at that sponsorship level. So I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a good sticker. It's one of the better stickers. Um, although I will tell you, I made this sticker before I uncovered the whole absorption being used for boat building. So on here, I don't actually mention boat building as a common use. So there you go. Uh, when you get your sticker and listen to the episode, you can write in boat building under common uses. Moving on from the lovely yellow birch, let's answer a few questions from you guys. Vaughn sent me this article about the biosphere. And I remember reading this in the past. This is not a new thing, but he asks about stress wood. Essentially, um, the biodome, remember that Pauly Shore movie? Wonderfully terrible movie. But the, the biosphere uh, is built down in Arizona. I believe it's property of the University of Arizona. It's entirely managed by the University of Arizona. But the trees have been falling over. Uh, and I want to say back as maybe early as 2016, certainly 2020, I began to see some stories about this. But these trees, as they grew towards maturity, just started to literally crack in half and fall over. And scientists were kind of puzzled because the nutrients and the water, all of that seemed perfect. Like these trees were perfectly healthy. They're getting everything they needed and they were growing really, really fast because of it. So at first they thought, well, because they're growing so fast, maybe the structure's not there. Maybe there's not enough time for the heartwood to build up. Um, and let's talk a little bit about specifically in hardwoods, the nutrients run up to the sapwood. The waste is transported via the medullary rays into the center of the tree. That waste then darkens over time and becomes the heartwood. The heartwood is essentially the skeleton of the tree, is what holds it up. It provides the strength to withstand the elements. Well, they were looking at these trees and discovering, well, no, there's heartwood here, but Let's talk about this a little bit further. What is the heartwood there for? It's to withstand the elements. What are the elements? Well, rain, wind, fire. Well, guess what the biodome doesn't have? None of that, specifically no wind. There is no stress wood, tension or compression wood that's actually being laid on because these trees are not experiencing any wind. So Vaughn basically asks, you know, what do you think about this and what exactly is stress wood? Well, exactly as it sounds, the tree in response to an external force, and let's just focus on wind. It can be something like gravity because the tree's growing on the side of a hill or branch wood is a good example. This is the branch, let's just say, moves perpendicular to the trunk. Gravity is pulling on it a different direction than the trunk itself. So wood lays on in order to strengthen that, that branch. Same thing happens with a tree in wind or a tree trying to get the best sunlight. If you've ever seen a tree that kind of takes a sharp turn in the middle of its trunk, it was growing around something. And sometimes that whatever it's growing around is still there. Sometimes whatever it was is gone. And all that's left is this, is this tree with a weird curve in it. I've even seen trees that like look like you know, half of a goalpost 
where they've taken like a sharp turn to the right and then gone straight up again as they've gone around whatever that was that was blocking their sunlight. The tree takes a turn and because of course it's taking a turn, it's getting gravity pulling on it. So the tree has to lay on stress wood. And this can be in the form of compression wood or in the form of tension wood. So let's look at this tree that takes our right turn and then goes straight up in order to get sunlight. The tree, as it turns to take a right turn, gravity is wanting to pull that down. So on the top of that bend, like the convex side of that bend, the tree will lay on tension wood, which will hold, you know, prevent the, the, the branch, prevent the trunk from sagging downwards. At the same time, it can lay on compression wood underneath that bend on the concave side, which prevents the tree from compressing, prevents the tree from, from sagging down on itself. Now, different species, different trees, different situations will form more tension wood than compression wood, and others will form more compression wood than tension wood. This gets heavy into the botany, and I'm not going to try to separate all that. And honestly, it's not really that relevant, getting to that level of detail for this conversation. The important part to think about is compression wood and tension wood is a totally different cellular structure. Um, tension wood will have more cellulose, more of the long fibers that makes wood wood and makes wood strong. It will have more of that cellulose in order to hold the tree in tension, to support that bend from above the bend. Compression wood will have a higher lignin content. Lignin is incredibly tough. It is what makes trees heavy. It's what makes them hard. Lignin obviously is very, very dense and it will not compress. If you push on it as the branch pushing down onto the compression wood underneath the bend is doing, that lignin will fight back and will bolster that branch. So the other thing you will find is just a different shape. Instead of, you know, we often think of wood fibers as being like straws, these like long cylinders that run up the tree. Compression wood and tension wood tends to be a little bit more ellipsoidal in shape. The other thing it can do is lay at angles to the cellulose, the fibers that are in the trunk. So think about plywood. We lay cross laminate grains in order to make a more stable um, panel, right? Well, the tree can do the same thing. If the fibers are running up the branch, you know, up the trunk and then curving out to a right angle and flowing with the long axis of that branch, the compression and the tension wood could possibly lay over it at a 90 degree angle in order to add that kind of plywood stability over top of it. Now I'm being very, very general here. It's not always going to be 90 degrees. It might not even be 30 degrees, but it's coming, coming at it in a different angle. And if you look at crotch wood all of that crazy grain, all of that, those ribbon stripes and those dark and light bands is because you're looking at ingrain and face grain and it's all kind of interlocked together because you're getting this grain moving in a bunch of different directions. And you could look at the underside of the crotch and the top side of the crotch and you can actually see the difference in how the grain looks and that's the difference between tension wood and compression wood. You also find that the compression wood underneath that bend is going to be much darker because of the higher lignin content, the higher density that's in that tree. So as you're working that wood, as you're working a branch or you're working through crotch wood, you'll find that the stuff underneath the branch is a hell of a lot harder. Um, it's gonna feel a lot more like ingrain. In fact, it's gonna soak up finish a lot like ingrain as well. And it very well be, may be 
partly in grain because of the way that possible 90 degree overlay of grain over top of it. The fibers on top the tension wood you find might be a little bit lighter. They're going to have less lignin, but they're also going to uh, feel like they're interlocked and feel like they're changing grain direction on you quite a bit because they actually physically are. And this is what's known as stress wood. The funny thing is if you Google something like stress wood, you'll find all kinds of like parenting and teaching um, articles because people often use the idea of stress wood as a way to to talk about teaching and parenting. You know, if you completely shelter your child or you shelter your students, they don't actually grow up to be big and strong because they don't encounter any stress or any adversity. I thought it was funny because I, as I started to Google this in order to find um, some really technical articles around this, it was actually really difficult. It was all these parenting articles and all of these like educational articles. So I thought that was funny. I finally did get there through a, a Forest Products Laboratory article, but it is particularly interesting. Also interesting interesting when you're doing dealing with things like greenwood if you're carving spoons because that's at least for me and my work that's really the only time I use branch wood but if you're using something like um, the a bend in in a trunk or using crotch wood or something like that that compression and that tension wood will also give you a clue as to how things might move if you cut that crotch like right down the middle you're essentially severing those long uh, high cellulose concentration tension wood fibers, and it could cause significant amount of twist and warp in that bend because you're essentially cutting the tension wood, releasing all that tension. And if there's not a lot of compression wood built up, if there's a lot of tension wood, there may be less compression wood because the tree doesn't need it. And you can find that that board may actually bend dramatically like right before your eyes. And that's one of the reasons people talk about how branch wood and, and stress wood uh, uh, gravity wood, things like that can be really bad from a movement perspective because that's the forces you have in that tree are balanced between the tension and the compression wood. Or if there's very little compression wood, there's a lot more tension wood. And the, the, what's opposing that tension wood is gravity or what's opposing that compression wood is gravity. And when that tree is suddenly felled and there's no gravity pushing down on it, you might actually find that the tree will move the opposite direction because now you no longer have an equal and opposite force resisting it. Newton's third law, folks. Newton's third law realized in trees. And that's why branch wood and crazy crotch figure and things like that tend to be... Uh, unpredictable is the best way to put it. They're beautiful and they can be fun to work with, but it also explains like a lot of the movement you might encounter as you're carving a spoon, like movement you can actually physically see in real time because you're severing that that stress wood. Anyway, fantastic question from Vaughn. I appreciate that. Uh, it's been one of those things I've kind of meant to talk about for a while and it took a question from him to bring it up. Uh, next question. This is from Nate about walnut sapwood. He says, we have some family farmland in Minnesota with several black walnut trees. My father-in-law estimates they're approximately 70 years old. Diameters are around 18 inches or so. Um, I'm considering milling some of them up. However, I'd like to get an idea how much sapwood they have given the narrow diameter. Is there a good way to do that? Take a branch off and see. Take down a tree. Well, certainly taking down the tree is one way to determine, but uh, if you decide there's there's too little heartwood, you can't stick it back in the ground and have it grow back. Taking off a branch, not the same. You're not going to find the same amount of distribution of heartwood and sapwood in a branch as you would in the trunk. 
And going back to my last question about compression and tension wood, you'll find that it's totally not indicative of the rest of the tree. Now, this is going to vary from species to species, but the kind of rule of thumb, at least what the Forest Products Laboratory will tell you, and frankly, a little bit of Googling from Sawyers and places like Woodweb, will tell you that a walnut growing in shade under canopy uh, will experience about one inch of sapwood. I don't want to say regardless of age, take a tree that's three to five years and older, and you're going to see about one inch of sapwood in that slower growing shade tree. But a walnut tree in full sun um, could have three to four inches of sapwood. It's quite a lot, quite a lot of sapwood. And of course, you also find that a tree, a walnut tree growing in sun is going to have a lot of knots, a lot of defects, a lot of crazy grain, things like that, because it's going to branch quickly and grow also quite quickly. So it's going to need greater sapwood to provide greater nutrients for that faster growing tree. The slower growing shade tree doesn't need quite as much nutrient layer, which is what the sapwood is, in order to support its growth. Um, so yeah, that's specific to walnut. Um, you can look at things like maple, you'll find that the ratio is totally different. You can even look at butternut and you'll find the ratio is different. There tends to be, I think, less sapwood and butternut than in black walnut. Don't quote me on that. I'm pulling that out of my memory and that could be wrong. So long story short, understand the species you're talking about. Do a little bit of Googling and look for uh, forest product laboratory documents or... or um, Sawyer forums and things like that, and even forestry silviculture forums will give you some idea. These numbers are not completely fixed, but they are endemic from species to species, and it can be somewhat predictable based upon shade and full sun growth. Great question, Nate. Um, I would tell you, unless the trees are in danger of coming down, unless you need some walnut right away, I would give them some more time. Um, you know, uh, the other thing you could possibly do is prune around the trees, maybe take some of the secondary ones and give those walnuts a little bit more light. And you might find that their growth may speed up. And over the course of the next three to four to five years, you might find substantial more growth if you improve the growing conditions of those walnuts. But then again, I don't know the rest of your situation. Um, you know, an 18 inch diameter tree, you're probably going to get Again, let's assume it's full sun, um, but it's also Minnesota, so it's going to be a little bit slower growth period just because, well, I mean, they certainly have hot and humid summers up there, but it's also pretty, pretty cold. I would imagine you'd have a greater contrast between early and late growth because of the dramatic um, temperature, moisture changes from summer to winter, um, but I would imagine you could get a 12-inch board out of that, maybe 16 inches, if you're lucky, dependent upon full sun or shade growth. It's pretty big for a walnut, and they're not really going to get that much bigger. So maybe I'm eating my words and going back on this now that I've talked it out loud and said, I don't know, maybe it, it might be time. And it could be one of the situations where you take down one of them, um, crack it open and see what happens. But in my opinion, unless like they're in danger of coming down, um, I don't know. I don't know that I would necessarily harvest them right now because you could get some even better growth in four or five years. And finally, I've got a question from Justin. Actually, uh, Justin has a question about Apatong lumber. And I think I've gotten the same question from three or four other people. I know Tommaso, you asked this at one point. 
Yeah, there's been a few people. I don't know why it's taking me so long to get to this, but uh, since I have Justin's question in front of me, um, I'll go from there because it's basically the same that other people uh, have been asking. But uh, he says, I'd love to hear some information on the conglomerate umbrella that is Apatong, or perhaps um, just one in the commodity species that is also known as Apatong. You'll also find that it's known as Karooing, by the way, Karooing and Apatong, which is what he's talking about when he says the conglomerate species. I've talked about this in the past when it comes to mahogany, uh, specifically African mahogany tends to be multiple species that gets lumped under the one market name. Um, Apatong is a market name. Karooing is also a market name for uh, essentially the same series of species. Um, Ultimately, Justin really wants to know what's the situation. Um, he's heard that it is endangered. He's also heard that it grows like a weed. And what do we what do we need to be, you know, what what's really the story, I guess, is the more appropriate question. So um Dipterocarcus carpus grandiflorus is really the primary species. Um, again, several other species within the Dipterocarpus um, genus comes up with, with these. Um, Justin goes on and says, I've got my hands on some. I really love it. I works as a cheaper alternative to mahogany. Yet when I search for Apatong furniture, I almost exclusively appear uh, hits for truck and trailer decking. Um, this is absolutely true. Um, truck and trailer decking is primarily what it's used for. But he says, how did it become relegated to anything and everything but fine furniture making um, fine furniture making and other fine carpentry uses? Um, I, when I'm buying it, I'm usually buying it as truck and trailer decking and repurposing it on my own. So uh, I wanted to bring this up because I've had several people who've asked me about this. Um, there is... Uh, what's the best way to put this? So yes, it grows like a weed. One of the reasons that it's used for truck and trailer decking is the tree grows very tall. Uh, it can be, I think, um, like 150 feet, if not taller than that. Very straight trunk. It is a um, sun loving, well, it's a rainforest tree. It's a canopy tree. So it shoots straight up and gets to the canopy as fast as it can to get to the sunlight. So you get these super, super long straight trunks that look like, you know, telephone poles, but super huge telephone poles, very straight grain, incredibly hard, heavy, dense wood. So it's very hard, very dense, which means it's like the ultimate flooring. It's also very, 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 very long, very tall. So think about truck and trailer beds. They undergo massive abuse, heavy things dropping on them, rolling around, getting rolled across them, dropped from forklifts, slid across them, but then also tractor trailer beds and just normal trailer beds, they're quite long, right? And to have a seam in that trailer bed, imagine if you drop a pallet, you take a forklift and you drop a pallet on the back of the trailer, and then it begins to slide forward. Well, if there's a seam, if there's a butt joint there, that pallet is going to catch on that seam and it's going to tear it all to hell. So you need a planking that's on your trailer that is continuous from one end to the other. And that's where Karooing or Apatong really, really shines. And honestly, that, I don't want to say it's unique, but that's a pretty unique thing in the tree world. So people have found a species that does that well. And the trucking and trailer guys have pretty much leaned into that 
And that's what is buying. So as with any species, it's what what the commercial demand is for. There's not a huge, sorry, turning off my space heater. Um, sorry, it's 15 degrees outside. It's cold where I'm recording. Um, there is, um, there's a huge demand for this material to be used for truck and trailer beds. Ultimately, truck and trailer beds are disposable. They get torn up over time and they do need to be replaced. So maybe like, you know, as a private citizen, you might put down a crewing deck in your truck and it'll last a lifetime. But for trucking companies and fleet management companies, they are constantly replacing their trailer bed flooring. So it's one of those kind of reusable things. It's like crane mats and steel mills and things like that. There is a constant demand for it and a constant demand for really, really long material. So once you've sawn out the long material from the log, there's really not a lot left over. And what's left over that isn't super long is what's kind of filtering its way into the Apatong market that's not truck and trailer bed. So that is quite a bit smaller. And frankly, there's not really a demand for it. You say it's a good alternative to mahogany. I would actually disagree because it's so much harder and denser than just about any of the mahoganies that are out there. Um, I find that it doesn't finish. It finishes fine, but it doesn't finish with the same depth and luster that you would get in mahogany because they're incredible density. To me, comparing Apatong or Karuing to mahogany is like comparing Ipe to mahogany. It's a super, super hard wood um, and kind of just has a niche that it's filled. And from a commercial perspective, there's really not a need to try to find another niche for it. Moreover, because the tree is quite clear and quite tall, there actually isn't a lot of waste that comes from it. You can cut this tree down, you can turn it into, you know, really, really long boards without a bunch of little extra short leftovers and things like that, because it goes straight up to the canopy. There's just not that much left over, which also accounts for the fact that it hasn't been used in anything else. And probably the only reason you find shorter links of it is maybe somebody who didn't know what they were doing as they felled the tree and the tree broke on impact as it landed. But these days, the folks who are harvesting Apatong or Karuing, they're doing it specifically for the truck and trailer bed flooring market and they know what they're doing. And they're using cranes in order to lower the stuff down and not cause that wood to shatter. So to those of you who have asked, what's the deal with it? Um, it grows quite prevalently um, all over Southeast Asia. The only reason that it might, someone might say that it's endangered is because it's not, um, it's not prevalent outside of this little niche industry. So if you go and talk to somebody who's not in the trailer bed flooring market, they'll have never heard of it and they won't be able to find it. And that's given it this impression that, oh my God, it's, it's, it's real hard to find. It must be scarce. It's not. Um, and because it grows so tall, and like I said, it grows like a weed straight up to the canopy, it's there. But it tends to be farmed and harvested specific for that purpose. And the companies that harvest it are specifically producing. That's all they're producing. That's the sole species that they're going after. So it's just another one of those market demand things that in this case, it fills that niche quite well without a lot of waste. So I hope that helps for everybody that's asked that question. Uh, another one of those really kind of specific species, but uh, I love these kind of questions that come out of left field. So that being said, thanks for listening. Uh, another episode in the bag. Uh, those of you who are our Patreon supporters, look for your yellow birch stickers. They will be mailed out uh, within the next couple of days. Hope you enjoy them and uh, go buy some lumber, folks. <laughs>